Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1137, air date October 26th. 2022. So Shiva, it's great to see you again. I think last time we were just discussing before that I saw you on Buzzsaw. I had you on Buzzsaw. We talked about uh, your invention of email and that process. And I think since then you have had even more controversy arise from your lawsuit against Gawker and being able to settle with them and and successfully settle your uh, lawsuit, the victories. I kind of want to start with where we left off, which was about 2015 time period, 2016 time period. And uh, you're reminding me that this is the 40th anniversary of the invention of email. So let's talk about this controversy because there's obviously those that say, especially Wikipedia will say essentially email was around since the seventies. People were able to send messages with the from to concept, right? With the CC, the basic conception of almost like text messaging is their conception of email. And so it helps to clarify what your invention was in particular, the term email, they say, yes, you did actually they acknowledge that you invented that. So what your system of email was at MIT. And, I did it um, yeah, before I came to MIT, Sean. So let's, okay. I think it's a good point to start at, Sean, because we haven't spoken in seven years. A lot has occurred, but it's a good time. This is the 40th anniversary of email. And on August 30th, 1982, I was a 17-year-old kid, and I got issued the first United States copyright officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. You have to understand that is a time when the only way to protect intellectual property of software was through copyright, because the guys in Congress had no idea what software was. So let me sort of unravel the background so your viewers understand. I grew up in India. Some of you may know, I grew up in a very intense spiritual family where my grandmother was a a Siddha, a healer. Uh, They were very poor village farmers. My great grandfather, you could call him a shaman. He'd do all these wild stuff that you read about in National Geographic, but we were considered the low caste, the untouchables. So the fact that my parents even made it to India is probably one in trillion to the power of a trillion at that time. And, but I grew up in this environment as a kid, I became very aware of these inequities because I remember going to visit a friend of mine, four years old, and his mother forced me to stand outside and gave me water in a different cup and called me Shudra, which is like the N word in America. And that's when my mother said, oh yeah, we're untouchables. And that, as a kid it was very deeply hurtful, but I, was moved to start understanding politics at a young age. So probably read since the age of four or five, everything I could get on revolutionary leaders. Very interested in why there was this kind of inequity and what's really the impetus for social change. But at the same time, Sean, I had a deep interest in medicine. My grandmother had no degrees. She was a village healer. People would come to her. She would observe their face. She could detect energies in their body. And then she would figure out what was wrong in particular aspects of their body. And then she would make Either she would give them a sound treatment or mantra or massage or a formulation of herbs. That was particularly for them. So it was the right medicine for the right person at the right time. It wasn't one size fits all. So I was moved by those two things, politics as well as medicine in an interesting way. So when I came to the United States in 1970, that was at a time when it was Vietnam War was still going on, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And this very traditional Indian family moves to Patterson, New Jersey, which is one of the poorest cities in the United States. What my parents would do is whatever money they made, because the Indians have this theory that education is premier, we would keep moving to the better public school systems. But by the time I was 14, seven years after we came, I had finished calculus, was not just a nerd, I played sports and all these things, but got a chance to go to NYU as a young kid. NYU had selected 40 kids to go there because a professor by the name of Henry Mullish had this vision that one day we would need software engineers. So he wanted to train the next generation. So I was one of these 40 who was very 
fortunate to go there at the age of 14. My mom would drop me off at the train station, go in at 6 a.m. and come back at 8. I graduated top of the class. When I finished, I still had high school courses, but then I ended up getting very fortunate. I got a full-time job in the heart of Newark, New which is, again, another one of the poorest cities in the United States. But in that, in Newark, New Jersey, was a small medical college. And I had a wonderful family who was very supportive. I had some very good high school teachers, and these people were working class teachers who had fought the administration of the school so this 14-year-old kid could travel 13 miles and have a full-time research fellow job. And I was given originally a job in this medical school by a mentor by the name of Dr. Michelson, who's still there. And the idea was, could I uh, understand why babies were dying in their sleep using computers, right? So we had sleep patterns of babies, and this was sort of the integration of computing with medicine. But while I was there, Sean, I was given another interesting challenge. Many of your viewers or people over the age of 40 will remember that in these organizations, be it a small medical college or be it the prime minister's office or the president's office, there were two ways that people communicated organizationally. One was through the phone system, right? The hardwired copper phone system. The other was with this paper-based system that was called the inter-office mail system. And this inter-office mail system was a very complex system of parts. Now, in those days, the computers were not desktops. They weren't iPhones, right? There were these big, huge mainframes. And who used those computers were old white guys who had little pocket protectors, and you had to have a PhD. You had to know programming. It was not for everyday people. And on those old mainframes, you had to know all this code, and you could do simple text messaging, right? And it was with like one-line sentences. Bob, upload this drive for me or something like that. But in that university, they had this thing called the interoffice mail system. And in every office was typically a doctor or researcher. And they had invariably a woman who was a secretary. And she had a, a physical desk. She had a desktop. <laughs> she had the inbox, the outbox, the folders, paper clips, right? Big file folders behind her. The doctor would go over to her, dictate a letter, and she would take the letter, put it in the drafts folder. He'd redline it. She'd write up the memo, which had a very particular structure. It was very organized to, from, subject. CC literally meant carbon paper. If she had to do a memo to Bill, hey, let's, we're thinking about hiring Sean, your resume would be attached, and you would CC. And if you had to do 10 CCs, you would literally have to do nine retypings right with the carbon paper, the original plus the other nine. And so this was the inner office mail system. And then you'd put it in an envelope, you tie the envelope, and then there were these pneumatic tubes, you'd send it around, you had registered mail, it was a complete system. So we're not talking about simple electronic messaging, which dates back to the Morse code, right? This was a complete system of parts. Now I was asked to convert that entire system, Sean, as a 14 year old kid, and the language at that time was a scientific language called Fortran. It wasn't text-based. So within about 8,000 bytes of memory, 8,000 kilobytes, I had to write all these systems to swap in the user interface. And the thing was, the secretaries were not going to leave their paper-based system to this new system unless it had all of those features, those hundreds of features which were in the physical world. So it's not a simple thing of just sending text messages. So I did that and I named that system email. So it wasn't only I created all of this stuff in the electronic version, but I named it email because the operating system only allowed five characters and it was not an obvious term then. And uh, one, one of the 
Westinghouse Science Awards, which in those days was known as the Baby Nobles. All of this was before MIT. And when I came to MIT, it was on the front page of MIT's newspaper where they highlighted three of the 1,041 students coming in. And they said, oh yeah, we have this guy who created the email system. And that year, I was elected student body president of the freshman class. And I went to the president's office, who was a guy by the name of Paul Gray, who was the president of MIT. He was on Reagan's Science Advisory Council. And he had heard about it. He goes, it's too bad the Supreme Court is not recognizing software patents. Because you see, the legislators didn't know what software was. They thought it was like written text. But in 1980, the Computer Software Act of 1980 had been passed, which allowed you to use copyright law to protect software. Now, I didn't know any of this. My parents weren't Bill Gates's parents or any of that. But Dr. Gray said, you should get a copyright. So I wrote away for it. There were no PDFs. You, know, you had to write away. You paid your 10 bucks. You got your copyright, filled it all out. And it was not a simple process of just getting a copyright. In those days, you had to submit all your code, which became public with the Library of Congress. Did that, had to do it a couple times. On August 30th, 1982, I was issued the copyright. So I have the legal copyright. I named it email, but not only did I name it, I actually created the system email. There's no controversy here. The controversy perhaps resulted later on because I wasn't a PR expert, didn't promote it. And I was very interested in medicine. My first year at MIT, second year, we started a radical newspaper because MIT had just done some horrible things, firing a dean who fought for rights. We organized the workers. One of my early mentors was Noam Chomsky. And uh, so yeah. that's what I was really interested in. And there's a- I was gonna say, it, feel, it feels like they're basically, the argument is, oh, because of the nature of the initial text messaging, very simple messaging that was going on that they're trying to take that away from you, basically. There's no way, the ARPA, yeah, the ARPANET guys, now, what was interesting is, at, yeah, so we'll talk about the email, then we'll come back. So I went in and out of MIT, did a bunch of degrees, never promoted the invention of email. It was only in 2011, my dear mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis, which she didn't tell me. Three months before she's, she dies, she gives me a Samsonite suitcase with all of those artifacts in there. The code, the paperwork, everything, beautifully organized. The only journalist still to look at this was the editor of Time Magazine, a guy by the name of Doug Ammon, senior technology editor. He went through this, he goes, oh my God, you invented email. He wrote an article called A Man Who Invented Email in Time. No one had any problems with that, except the Smithsonian and the Computer History Mu uh, Museum said, oh my God, we didn't know you had all this. So I gave it to the Smithsonian. And on February 16th, 2012, it went into the Smithsonian, they did a big, they did a big ceremony. That evening, a reporter, a young reporter, did an article called Dr. Shiva Idre honored as the inventor of email. And that's when the proverbial shit hits the fan. You had these liberal elites who had already written the story on email and they thought they had put the final period in it, which was a guy who looked like a nerd, who worked at a company called Raytheon, who was using the at symbol as their brand, which is a $35 billion a military weapons manufacturer who had moved into cybersecurity had branded themselves as the inventors of email. And this was like a new skull was found in Africa that reset the entire history and affected their brand, which was making around $200 million by putting themselves as the inventors of email. Now, I didn't know the rat's nest I had entered into. I was just giving my materials to make sure it was documented. And so what you see from that day on, Sean, on 20, February 16, 2012, this 
reporter gets thrown under the bus. Oh, you're an idiot. How dare you say he's the inventor of email? This was done by the ARPANET guys. You have all these guys. I was teaching a course at MIT while running my company, one of the most popular electives, thousands of calls literally come in saying this guy should be fired. How dare he say he's the inventor of email? Gawker Media writes three articles calling me an asshole, a dick, a fraud. Blogs came out saying this curry stain Indian should be beaten and hanged. No one did anything, particularly the Indian community, because Indians are brought up in this very neo-colonialist environment to shake their heads and take this Gandhian bullshit approach. Now, what people didn't know, Sean, was I'd always been a fighter. I've always fought for others, organized massive protests apart. You go look at my history, fighting against the Iraq war before it was popular. But it was a very interesting personal journey. It was a very deep personal journey where I had to realize it's one thing where you're fighting for others, but it's a hard thing where you have to fight for yourself. And I've talked to people who've been raped and they say, you think you did something wrong? Maybe I didn't invent email. Now, in my class, I had a very smart student, and he was really upset at all this vitriol. So he went literally to the MIT libraries. He spent like three months, and he went through every microfiche written prior to 1978. Maybe I didn't invent it, right? Maybe someone else did all this stuff together. No one had done anything. In fact, what we found was a document written by the eminent leader of the time of electronic messaging, a guy by the name of David Crocker. Now, Crocker was out in the Washington Post at that time saying Shiva's full of shit. And this is one of the way they hijack innovations. They go, oh, no one person could have invented this. It's too big. It occurred in a collaboration. I'm talking about the ARPANET, his little ARPANET click, which, by the way, was all about always trying to get credit for things they didn't do. If you go read the history about it, like BBNN and Raytheon at the time. So what he forgot was in December of 1977, the year before I invented email, he had written an article talking about the state of electronic messaging. And when we say electronic messaging, we're talking about the transfer of messages between electronic and electrical devices. And he had said, at this time, there is no attempt to create a electronic emulation of the inner office mail system. It's too impossible because we have to deal with all these different users of differing expertise. What he meant by that was we'd have to make sure the secretary could use it, right? all these different people, it would have to have all these features. So they thought it was impossible and we have it in writing. And when we put that out, Crocker, and this is quite a wild controversy that's going on, calls my old mentor and says, oh, you got to quiet Shiva down. So these guys completely bullshit. It's the biggest fraud to say the ARPANET guys invented email. What they did was a rudimentary version of Reddit. What did they actually do was have the ability, and Ray Tomlinson talks about it, said it took him 15 minutes to attach text to the bottom of a file, and that file was shared. That is an early version of Facebook at best. It was a shared file format that could be shared. It didn't have the inner office mail system. When you log into email, what do you see today? Inbox, outbox, folders. If you want to say, if you want to say any transfer messages is email, that would make Facebook email. It would make Twitter email. These are very different media. So I had to do a lot of soul searching, Sean, and it made me realize that what I had to fight for was not about me, but that 14-year-old, dark-skinned, Indian-American, low-caste Indian kid who did invent email before he came to MIT in Newark, New Jersey. So there's multiple levels of discrimination here. And by the way, it's a 14-year-old boy who invented TV, Philo Farnsworth. Philo invented it. He didn't have as many levels of hurdles, but he did create it 
outside of the military industrial academic establishment. He created yeah. a small town called Franklin, Idaho. And he had, but he had the same environment, a loving family, a mentor, and he got access to infrastructure. Yes. RCA stole it from him. They started producing TVs in the 19th year of when the patent life was due, he wins, he dies an alcoholic. It took 60 years for him to get credit. So I had to really start thinking about what does credit mean? And it made me realize credit matters, Sean, because mm -hmm. it wasn't about me. It's about where does innovation originate? And then you have to do the deeper inquiry into what is innovation. Mm -hmm. And innovation ultimately realizes an expression of the divine. And it is mm -hmm. creativity, art. So I realized that I had essentially gone big circle back to a caste system. Because a caste system was there were the Brahmins on top. They were the only ones who could be creative and everyone else was shit. That's what they were saying. Okay. And we've all seen this system play out. I want to I want to move on because we covered a lot of these this exactly the story right. we covered in the bus interview a few years ago. And I, I get into what's currently happening now. Basically yep. what we saw play out talking about a caste system. What we call we, we all saw play out in 2020 and thereafter with exactly if the science is Fauci and he basically self-proclaims himself. He promulgates this idea that I am the science, and if you're a doctor that's working to treat patients, right, with that's not recommended from from the NIAID and Fauci's groups, basically, and that gang, then then you're basically a heretic. Now you can even be in California, you can be uh, de-licensed, right, for even questioning right. to the, the safety new bill that get passed, yeah, of the, of the vaccine. So it's there is of course it's very clear within the scientific world and the academic world, as you saw yourself. And I'm just curious for you that what was the breaking point? Was it around this email thing? Because thereafter you've become more outspoken. Certainly during 2020, you were outspoken. I remember seeing you talking about how ridiculous this whole mask up and this terror, this fear of the fear of viruses and just the overall like hysteria that was playing out in 2020 and thereafter. So what was your breaking point with the that world of the, the academic world? Was it, did it really begin around this controversy well, in 2016 so time period? Yeah, so to me, it actually began in 1981. I didn't even know, just to transition this from the email to this, I didn't even know about MIT until 1981. Two weeks before I applied for MIT, I was content. I actually wanted to do design and be an artist, believe it or not. I was done with all the programming and everything I'd done as a kid. I felt I'd done a lot. So two weeks before I applied, my mom had helped these two actually homeless women stay at our home. She gave them some space. And one of them had a wacky boyfriend who came by and said, you should apply this place called MIT. I went to a predominantly Jewish, very wealthy Jewish school in the last three years. And me and my sister were the only two dark skin Indian kids. And so there was a lot of this competition, right? So no one even told me about any schools. I got no guidance, but this random guy told me about MIT. And I thought it was a mental institute. He showed me the picture, Mental Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I had no interest in applying. He wouldn't leave. I filled out the application by paper, got accepted. When I went, I didn't like MIT, Sean. I thought the place looked crazy. People looked very unhealthy. And I was into athletics, sports, and these people looked unhealthy. Anyway, my high school teacher convinced me to go there. She goes, you like Boston. It's the Athens of the world. You'll meet some great people. I said, that's pretty cool. So that's the only reason I came. But since the day I came to MIT, Sean, I was always fighting, organizing, fighting, organizing, fighting. And at one point, I realized, you know what? I'm going to get their degrees. And this was a very conscious decision I made, Sean, because I knew that one day I would want to fight some serious issues and I want to throw their degrees back in their face. Does this make sense? It was sort of a 
strategic decision I made. And so I went in and out of MIT. I got all these degrees in all these different fields of engineering and met some very interesting people, but always knew that there was this larger fight that the academics were ultimately the people like the Brahmins in the Indian caste system who controlled power. So to me in 2018, what I didn't tell you was I ran for office against Elizabeth Warren. We ran a very funny campaign called Only the Real Indian Can Defeat the Fake Indian. We forced Warren to take the DNA test and it wasn't about race, it was about this lack of integrity. Another academic talking about how grand they were, but actually were was using race in many ways to pro profit. So when 2020 came along, it was a very interesting meeting because my PhD ended up being in systems biology. So I had this background on the immune system. I had in 2019 just was invited to give the lecture at the National Science Foundation on the modern science of the immune system. So that had occurred. And in 2019, we ran a conference right here. We had close to a thousand people show up called the Vaccine Safety and Immune Health Conference. And in that conference, we said, hey, look, the model that they're using for to jabbing people is based on a 1915 model of the immune system, which you only have the innate and the adaptive systems where the whole goal is to generate antibodies. But you're subverting all these other very important systems, the interferon system, the microbiome, because when you actually get hit by a virus, it's not the virus that kills you. This is a very screwed up notion of the alien movie where something's eating away. It is your reaction to that onslaught. And if you don't have the proper shock absorbers, immunomodulation, your body basically eats itself away. Like with Ebola, your body goes and eats the endothelial tissue or with COVID, et cetera. So we had done that conference. And so in 2020 in New Jersey, where I'd originally grown up, New Jersey was trying to pass this vaccine mandate, right? And I literally built this bottoms up movement and we stopped it. And you had the quote unquote, the existing old guard of the anti-vax movement, like the Kennedys and all these people trying to say, no, don't do this. We got to negotiate with the Democrats. These guys have been sitting on the so-called medical freedom movement for a long time. But we brought a whole new blood to it, which is we need to build a bottoms up movement. And if you go look at my tweet feed in March of 2020, when they did this pandemic, I said, this will go down in history as a way to destroy economies, do censorship and destroy health. And that started going viral because he had the MIT PhD next to it. So it was hard to argue with that. And it, in many ways, the decision I'd made came into help and the background I had. So when I did that video, Sean, I got a call from someone at the White House, a senior person on the Economic Council. He said, Dr. Shiva, Trump is not listening to us. He's blindly following Fauci. Please do more videos to educate us. So if you look at that period, I would do two to three videos educating people on the science of the immune system over and over and over again. And they started going prolific. I did a vitamin three video, I think got 70, 80 million views before it was put down, but we really started educating people. I wrote to Trump and I said, please don't lock down. And this is in 2020, I said, take a personalized approach. That's what the future of medicine, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Take those people who are seriously ill, fine. Like in any flu, they should be quarantined, but others should boost their immune system. And we gave a protocol, vitamin D, a quercetin, zinc, iodine, vitamin A. And we sent it to him. Marla Maples actually got it to him because she was following me. And we had a conversation, but Trump at the end of the day didn't do anything. What he did was he ended up saving big pharma. What Obama did for banks, Trump did for big pharma. And even though I had initially been a supporter of his because I saw him as an anti-establishment force, we did the Fire Fauci campaign, Sean, back then. 
We collected about 180 signatures. We took it down to the White House. And so in that journey, I decided to also run, and this leads to, so we had, essentially we were educating the world on what the real immune system is, the BS of not only Fauci, but the entire academic scientific establishment, which essentially was in cahoots with Big Pharma. But one of the other important things, because having come from this world of biological engineering that we also taught people was that Big Pharma was actually sinking, Sean. People keep thinking that Big Pharma makes a lot of money. Over the last 10 years, they've been losing money. And why have they been losing money? Pfizer, for example, 10 years ago made 65 billion in revenue. In 2020, they were at 40 billion. They've lost 25 billion, why? Because their model of drug development involves finding a single synthetic compound and putting it through this 14 year process, which also has side effects. So even the FDA wasn't allowing many of their drugs. So they've been tanking. So they needed a way out of this trillion dollar industry tanking. So beyond a lot of the other theories of people put forward, if you just look at power, profit and control, big pharma is going to go out of business. And so what I say is what Obama did for big banks, Trump did for big pharma. He saved them. And what he did was they fast tracked Operation Warp Speed, which said you don't need to do any clinical trials. And if you look at Pfizer in 2021, they made $80 billion. They went from 40 billion tanking to 80 billion. So vaccines were their savior for all these pharma companies whose basically entire model of synthetic compounds was failing. So I've heard the argument that essentially the major, the point of the COVID gain of function engineered virus was always basically to be, to be released for the purpose of getting the population to accept mRNA technology vaccines, which we're now seeing a whole, they're going gangbusters, right? I've heard of, yeah. they got cancer, they got the cancer vaccines and the Alzheimer's vaccines and they're right. going gangbusters for everything. We got, we got, just go for it. mRNA technology for everything. And it's, they're, they obviously, they don't have much, they don't have much, uh, protocol for, for, for the testing process anymore. It's just, I think they can just test on eight rats or something before they roll it out for right. the public. It's interesting because Bob Langer was my advisor, my under, one of my undergraduate advisors at MIT. He's made like 3 billion bucks right now. And he was, he created essentially the lipophil technology, the nanotechnology to deliver this. But Bob comes from a chemical engineering background. Now the reality is what's happened recently, and this is a longer discussion, is that the notion of what is a gene up until 10 years ago, gene was a piece of DNA which coded for protein. And we felt we had about 20,000 genes. And a worm has around 20,000 genes, by the way. But, and I'll get into Cytosol. So in 2003, when I came back to MIT, biology was in a revolution because people recognized that the biologist reductionist model of looking at the body, that the difference between you and I and a worm was a number of genes. Biologists have this notion that the more complex a system is, must have more parts. It's a very reductionist model. The truth is that even though we have 20,000 genes and a worm has 20,000 genes, our genes create proteins just like the worms, but these proteins feed back on themselves in much more complex ways. So we have more complex molecular reactions than a worm does. These are called molecular pathways. So in 2003, what ended up happening was people realized that we need to start mapping, not the genome, but these molecular pathways. And what about if you could map the molecular pathways and mathematically model it on the computer, then you don't have to kill animals. You could discover personalized precision medicine. So that's when I came back to 2003 
and between 2003 and seven, I created a technology called Cytosol. If email was the electronic manifestation of the inner office mail system, Cytosol was an electronic manifestation of the molecular system, uh, of the cellular molecular system. So we were able to look at any field of medicine, cancer, leukemia, inflammation, immunology, ex extract out all the molecular pathways in the known literature, convert them to mathematical models and connect them together. So none of the things that we were doing were just randomly picked, cherry-picked science, but unified approach based on the current science. But one of the things that has emerged recently is people are recognizing that the definition of a gene is much more bigger because the genes that I'm talking about only take make up 5% of the genome. The other 95% are, guess what? Ribonucleic acids, mRNA, transfer RNA, silencing RNAs. So when you're going and injecting an mRNA into someone, you're playing with stuff that you have no idea of what you're actually doing. The feedback loops, right? Just from an engineering standpoint. Nubar Afayan, who's the CEO of Moderna. The entire goal here has been, to your point, they want to create a platform, which is the mRNA platform. And once the vaccines were just one part of it to test that platform out. But the idea is, the goal is you would use, you'll use this platform for all sorts of diseases. But all of this is based on a lack of understanding of the fact that the other 95% of the genome are ribonucleic acids. And what are the cross feedback loops? What are the kinds of things that this could cause? And without doing that, or without understanding that, you're basically experimenting on people in a fundamental way. So in 2021, 2020, 2021, because of Cytosol, we were able to churn out a lot of content explaining this to people. And I think by the time I decided to run for office again in 2020, we ran again as a Republican in the Republican primary. Our slogan became truth, freedom, and health. So the slogan was, we're at a point in history that you can't have the movements for health over here. You know, and the people talking about yoga, I don't want to take my body and organic foods and all that over here, call them yoga Nazis, or you can't have, or the new age people. And over here, you have the quote unquote rednecks or for the first amendment and second amendment. And they look and feel a certain way. And over here, you have the nerds and innovators fighting for truth and science. My view is all these movements need to come together because from a system standpoint, truth, freedom, and health are highly integrated because without freedom, which is actually, if you want to take a scientific definition, it's a movement of information, matter, and energy. By the way, in the Indian system, that's called Vatha. It's the aspect, if you study Ayurveda, the movement of, or in the engineering system, it's called transport. So, it's, so what I realized was that political systems, early traditional medicine systems, and modern engineering systems are all have a very fundamental universal set of laws. Freedom being the aspect of movement of information, matter, and energy. The problem is when I finished my Fulbright, I was very interested in 2007, understanding how my grandmother was able to do this. When I went back to India after my PhD, I found out there's all these Ayurvedic people like Deepak Chopra, they talk about this, but they couldn't explain it. So then they started becoming woo-woo. And so people really lost the depth of what Ayurveda was or Siddha was. Ayurveda and Siddha, what I discovered, Sean, are not medical systems or engineering systems, which came up with a different lingua franca to understand the whole body as a whole system. Three of those nine principles were Vata, Pitta, Kapha in the Indian system, which I realized were the same as transport, conversion, and storage from general systems theory. Movement, transport, Vata, conversion processes where you're taking one form to another, digestion, that's a Pitta aspect,
and structure or storage like this building has the beams your body has your skeletal structure right that is the aspect of kapha so that was a big breakthrough we published that in, a, in an engineering systems journal and then i realized when i ran for politics if you're going to build a society these same principles must occur otherwise you need a foundation you can't be left versus right republican versus democrat and what i realized was it was freedom truth and health freedom the movement of information matter and energy vatha principle you need that in order to have science because if you don't have open exchange of information you suppress the scientific method which is a method which is based on throwing all sorts of crazy ideas out there right and then you have to prove yourself you get the evidence as richard feynman said it doesn't matter how good looking you are what family you come from if the results don't match the models you're just wrong yeah that's why there's so few laws in science i always laugh when people are saying the science is settled i say how many laws are there in science we have a lot of theories even right, a lot you know, of relativity is still a theory it's like most of what capital t theories yeah yeah so even exactly. newton's it's newton's laws of gravitation are constantly being worked on and what einstein discovered was under certain conditions those laws break down so you have to do a correction so these things are constantly being refined so you have freedom which determines truth and if you don't have freedom and truth you can't figure out what's right for your health and if you don't have your physical health physically you're strong mentally you're strong you don't have the wherewithal to fight for freedom or truth so that became the basis of our campaign in 2020 in Massachusetts we ran as republicans we had an amazing campaign Sean we had 3000 volunteers we raised 2 million dollars in a primary 1 $1 $5 from everyone around the country they were very happy to see this this guy who had some engineering background some science background and was an activist run we had 3000 volunteers on the ground 25000 bumper stickers 10 they were everywhere so the republicans who are in cahoots with the democrats could not bear to see someone like me run so they well, find an establishment i would call it the establishment but they're the establishment republicans and it's like they're right. the outsiders you get the occasional cynthia mckinney who was a right. democrat but even they ditched her when she was anti anti iraq war or anti right. calling for questioning 9/11 so it's so you're and questioning the clutch yeah. yeah so we ran and we blew these guys away because we had volunteers all over massachusetts So these guys find a guy with an Irish name Kevin O'Connor to run. No one even knows the guy. He had one lawn sign up and on election primary night September 1, 2020, the street on the ground, the word on the ground was Dr. Shiva is going to win by a landslide. So it turns out in mass and I remember I never I knew about third world countries having election things, right? But I never thought it occurred in in, in the US. Yeah, 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 because even with all my so-called political maturity supposedly Ashan, I didn't think like people actually manipulated elections, right? In the US. I recently saw your dad's movie on Nixon, the Nixon Kennedy thing. You find out that Kennedy's Kennedy actually, you know, the mob, the mob was involved and they likely manipulated that election, right? But in Great. in Texas, my situation, Texas was a political machine of Lyndon Johnson, so he Exactly. He had, obviously, he had Texas and Locke and Illinois was a critical mob in Chicago. That's all mob, so yeah, they were involved there. Yeah, they were involved in that. And he walked away. I think he said you Uh, the election was stolen from you fairly it was a very interesting line in that movie stolen um, stole fair and square fair and square yeah so in massachusetts we win on election night we see the results coming in i win by 10 points in the all hand counted county which is all white working class people that those are my base people connected with me regardless of my skin color they said this guy's one of us but in every other county shawn 60 40 60 40 60 40 all those other counties used machines And that's when I said this is impossible because we were on the ground. We saw the support. And hand counted ballots 
are not run, they're counted by hand, right? They're not going through the machines. So this is when I had to put on my hat as an engineer, as a scientist, and I said, wait a minute, how do these election systems work? I'm, an, I'm a technologist. And we found out that when paper ballots go through the electronic machines, a ballot image is created, a picture of the ballot. Very few people know about this. The image is analyzed by AI on the machines, which looks for those dots. And the dots have to be a certain size, et cetera. And you can set those thresholds. And I found a manual, which was written about 10 years before, which basically says that there's a feature on these machines called the weighted race feature. You can assign weights. So if I got, let's say you and I ran and you got 100 votes and I got 100 votes, they could assign your weight to be, for every one vote, it could be 1.2 votes. It's a feature. Now, is, that, is that an algorithm how they create that? Is it in the it's actually source? a feature setting. You can set it. It's in the manual. If you go look yeah. at my videos, I, I actually show the page in the manual, which has it. Yeah. But, and so, so, so in, short, in short increments, you would obviously notice it, right? You would notice right. it, but as you get into the millions or hundreds- You won't notice it. Exactly, can, it becomes hard. Right. Yeah. So what we did was because of my math background, we took data and we did a stochastic analysis. And we ran scenarios and we found this very interesting pattern that was like one in hundred million. So anyway, I go on Twitter at about half a million followers. And this is in the middle of the, so remember September one, the primary ends. Our supporters were so upset. We moved our campaign to a write-in campaign in the general election, Sean. And Twitter, I go, by the way, before Twitter, I went to the state's office with a, one of our volunteers. And I said, I want the ballot images. I issued a FOIA. The secretary of state says, oh, we deleted those ballot images. We don't have to preserve them. So in a series of four email interaction between me and the lawyer for the secretary of state, we have the emails where she's saying, I don't have to preserve the images. I said, show me the law. She doesn't show me a law. So I go on Twitter and I said, Massachusetts deleted 1 million ballots hyphen ballot images, which is what they did. They're admitting. And I put those four emails and that starts going viral. I get suspended off Twitter. Never been suspended in my life since 2007. And one of these fake fact checking organizations calls up the secretary of state to attack me. And they said, oh, Dr. Shiva's lying. Ballots were not deleted. And I never said ballots. I said ballot images. So they conflated those two. But in that article, they said, when we spoke to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State told us that they had contacted Twitter. So let me repeat that again. The government had contacted Twitter to silence a U.S. Senate federal candidate. So that's when I knew I had a First Amendment. And this is in 2020. No lawyer in Massachusetts wanted to take on the government. I had to file the federal case myself, Sean, and represent myself in federal court. Filed it. Lo and behold, we were very fortunate. We get a preliminary injunction hearing which is unheard of because judges don't like to do that. The judge was an old Reagan appointee. So I go in against three Harvard lawyers, the secretary of state's lawyers, and we ended up winning our preliminary injunction hearing because in that cross-examination, the social media director of the secretary of state, me and the judge are cross-examining are saying, how did you decide to throw me off? She goes, we saw that you put up these messages and we felt that they were hurting us. So we contacted Twitter. The judge says, how did you contact Twitter? He goes, oh, we have a special VIP portal. He goes, what do you mean you have a VIP portal? So the government can watch private citizens and has a special portal. And this is the most grossest violation of the First Amendment. The founders fought. Political speech was the most important thing to be protected above all forms of speech. This is all now coming out with this new this new lawsuit that they're basically, that's been brought. And the, the, yeah, but our, it came out in our lawsuit. I know, I was saying, but it's coming out 
more for the general population with Bi Biden administration colluding with Twitter and Fauci. Right. And this is where it gets. This is where it gets. This is, now. This is where it gets interesting. The difference between this case and that case. Why I believe they're bringing that out. Because so on October thirtieth, we get the preliminary injunction issued. Big victory. I write to Tucker Carlson, who supposedly cares about all this. Tucker does nothing. Jack shit. Excuse my language. He does nothing because it was too hot. Why was it too hot? And I'll get to that. And this is where we need to explore this. Anyway, we win that. I go back on Twitter. They put me back on November 4th, interesting enough, after the election ends. On February 1, I once again share those four emails and boom, I'm thrown off permanently this time. I go back into court on February 4th. The judge says, this is crazy. And he says, I want you to bring in Twitter in. Before it was just me against the Secretary of State. So judge orders Twitter, says me against seven lawyers, three of them being from Wilmer and Hale. And we file our court proceedings. And the lawyer at Twitter accuses me of having shadow counsel. She couldn't believe the quality of the briefs I was doing. I just started learning the law, Sean. It wasn't that hard. Case law citing it. So anyway, on May 21st, before the hearing, the next hearing, I find a set of four documents that were on Harvard servers and servers in Europe, which actually lay out manuals. They're actual manuals written by Twitter, the defendants in my lawsuit, the government, laying out how you will target a US citizen, brand them as an influence operator, an election influence operator. And one of the criteria is if they say anything that, that election officials are corrupt. That's one of the criteria. It's written in black and white. So I find this, lo and behold, the day before, the night before the hearing. So I go into the hearing and I say, judge, all of these defendants before you have lied saying they didn't know each other. I said, this document, they're in the front page and they're these manuals which lay out how every American citizen can be censored. It's, a, it, it's the laundering of censorship. Government launders censorship to private companies. The judge is appalled. He calls almost a close to the hearing, he says, this lawsuit will be taught in every law school class, constitutional law class. He then asked me, do you want a lawyer? I can, I have the right to appoint you a constitutional lawyer. You've done so well by yourself. Now, the mistake I made was I took that constitutional lawyer. And what ended up happening was I had seven claims, Sean. One was to get back on Twitter, but the other was to make these government officials personally pay because what they had done was not something they did ad hoc. It was RICO, a conspiracy. The judge wanted me to drop all those other claims. He just wanted to put me on Twitter thinking this would be the biggest lawsuit, the biggest first lawsuit. Unlike Berenson, I didn't capitulate. And when I went in and I had to fire my own lawyer that they'd appointed. And now the lawyer, the judge went from being very friendly to being very antagonistic. And he sealed the lawsuit, Sean. He censored the lawsuit on censorship. And he forced me just to accept one claim. And I wasn't willing to do that. I said, I don't just don't want to go on Twitter at this point. I said, these people need to be held accountable. Now, why is this? Now, two years later, the same thing is coming out. And here's the fundamental difference between the vaccine stuff while they're willing to acknowledge that. And if you look at those lawsuits, they leverage a lot of the stuff we did in our lawsuit in 2020. Here's the difference one individual fighting against the vaccine stuff, right? Expressing their individual freedom is very different than the voting model. You see, we're talking, my lawsuit was about the foundations of US democracy. 
which is that the election systems, that if you say anything against election systems, you will be thrown off. So here's a fundamental difference. So what? So this is why I believe the way the establishment works. They will allow the quote unquote, the truth to come out two years later, right? When it's in vogue to talk about it. But in 2020, had Tucker Carlson talked about it, had, we, had he used his megaphone, we wouldn't have had a lot of the things that occurred after that. So this is a very particular feature that we teach now in this whole, we have now 360,000 people that we train in an entire movement called Truth, Freedom and Health. And what we're training people is, there is the obvious establishment, Sean, but the more evil force, if you wanna think about it, if you wanna use those words, there's a not so obvious establishment. The establishment that claims that they're fighting for you, but always does things too little too late. And then people get all excited that they think they're getting some freedoms when it's essentially a way to appease the masses. So all of these guys knew about our lawsuit, Carlson, Berenson, Glenn Greenwald, including, I hate to say it, but they didn't do jack shit about it because I'm not in their, what I call the pseudo refusenik click. They talk about stuff, but not when it's important. That's my theory on this. Alan McDonald, the guy who was on the space shuttle, he was at Morton Thiokol. He was a director. They wanted him to sign off on the space shuttle going up in 86, right? He knew the O-rings had issues. He said, I'm not going to do it. He was under massive pressure. He just died a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, the most important thing in life is not to say the right thing, but to say the right thing at the right time when you can have an effect. So in 2020, think about what would have happened if the doctors now had come about, because many of them knew this, Sean, but they waited They w waited to see which way the wind blew. And that is one of the things we are educating people on. So Truth, Freedom and Health has become a movement. It is an educational system. And it, we have created technologies independent of big tech, but we have a community of 360,000 people in 95 countries. Number one, we educate people on the science of systems, which is what the elites learn. All the people in the WF, all these people, they learn the science of systems. They know how to manipulate the masses. There is an actual science that is taught at MIT, is taught at Harvard, taught at Kennedy School, that you can actually understand how the world actually works. Everyday working people don't learn this, so we teach that to people. I've consolidated into a curriculum everyone can learn. We give people textbooks. We've created a community. But one of the most important things we teach, Sean, is one of the principles of system science is called the disturbance. When you're trying to get to your goal, the things that get in your way. And the most elusive disturbance is the not so obvious establishment. It's not the obvious establishment. So it is on the left and right, you have the shoulders of the establishment parties, but it is the wings, Sean, that always keep people enthralled, the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders. And in my view, Trump did that on the right. When we expose the election systems issues, we expose the ballot images being destroyed. We went to the fundamental issues of signature verification. If you read the work we did in Arizona, it's like a PhD work. But then you had the Mike Lindells and all these other right-wing guys who took it and they just freaking sold pillows off of it. And I know Mike, he's a nice guy, but they didn't go at the heart of the issues. So whenever a real issue's there, you have elements, opportunist elements, which take the real issue and Trump did the same thing. I met with Trump twice. He didn't really talk about the issues. He made a half a billion dollars off election fraud, but he didn't go address the real issues. When I was here on November 3rd, you know, Mark Meadows called me, all these guys called me, say, Dr. Shiva, we wanna help you. As a lot of the analysis I did was going viral. It was our movement here 
that exposed, first pointed out the big issues. Then we went deeper and deeper in a very scientific systems approach. But these guys, they take a real issue, Sean, and they want to make money off of it. So now what's happened is election fraud has become a right-wing issue, right? When 52 USC 20701, which was the law that was passed, so you would encourage audits, was passed by a Democrat majority 50 years ago. So what's happened is the election systems issue, which should be an American issue, has become a right-wing issue. The environment is a left-wing issue, and they make CO2 the issue when it isn't. So what the establishment has become very clever in taking real problems and using the not-so-obvious establishment to attack the supposed establishment. And this is a recurrent process, and we have to get clear on this, that this is the heart of why change doesn't occur. It's not the obvious establishment. It is the not-so-obvious establishment. And this is deep, but this is the journey that people need to learn. And every time people try to build independent organic movements bottoms up, what we teach in the course starting in the 1900s when a true workers movement was occurring in the United States, even in Russia, all over the world, the establishment got very clever. They said, shit, we can't have this occur. So in India, in the 1920s, when the Indians wanted to have a good revolution, they parachuted in Gandhi, who served to make sure white men with crowns left and brown men with white hats took place. I mean, Rishi Sunak, or the it's ironic, we have neo-colonialism right now because many of the heads of many of these tech companies are all brown-skinned Indians, very similar to what they did in India, but they're doing it in a global way. That's why I, th I find Rishi Sunak's election quite interesting. It's almost a globalization of using the brown-skinned administrators to subjugate masses of people. In right. the United States, when those movements came up, the same thing has occurred here. By the 1950s, anytime you said workers unite bottoms up movement, that was branded as communist by the right. And then the left took over the unions. So by 1970s, there were no more strikes. Between 1900 to 1970, in the United States, there were close to 11,000 strikes, 100 million people. And that's when working people's wages grew with GDP. Since right. 1970 to today, we only have about 900 strikes, maybe 2 million workers on the streets. So the left and right have worked very well to ensure that everyday working people don't get on the ground and build a bottoms up movement. And that's what we want to do, Sean. Truth, Freedom and Health is about educating people on the physics of how do you build a movement. Just if you have to build a bridge, there is a science. So that's where we're at, Sean. I don't, I think it's an opportunity for people to stop outsourcing their dignity to others, celebrities, thinking of Robert Kennedy is going to do something. Robert Kennedy endorsed Hillary Clinton three times during when she said that she was pro-vaccine and pro-Monsanto. And I had to do a thing. I did an event with him and I said, wait a minute, this guy's, you're not walking the walk. He held an event at his home. Everyone had to be vaccinated before coming in. And people, that, that's a tricky one. That's the wife. That's the SAG-AFTRA. Yeah, know, I know, but that was a, yeah. that's a, I don't think that's fair. But, Bob, but Bobby endorsed Hillary Clinton three times. I understand. I totally understand that. And what I'm uh, saying is these inconsistencies. Like Tulsi Gabbard and Biden, and now she's breaking. It's like I understand your argument that they break too late. They break when it's they break when it's opportune because American media and the Madison Avenue branding can read which way the direction's going. Look, Trump using "Make America Great," "Lock Her Up." These were very well branded slogans because the white working class in this country was used once by Obama. A lot of Trumpers who voted for Trump voted for Obama, 50% of them. So Obama was the brand equity that they used for eight years. And this is, this. look, I've met with Trump. 
He may be a nice guy. He gave me some nice gifts, you know, all that. It's not about the people's individual things. And they may not even know that they're doing this. But what I can tell you from a historical scientific perspective that Trump knows how to read which way the direction is going. If you think about the elites, and in my view, if you believe elections are selection, Sean, we have to apply that all the way. How did Trump win that? You say, and people say, oh, it was a big landslide. I have a different theory. Here's my theory. The elites were recognizing that the working class in this country realized that we used Obama. Now we need a white guy to manipulate the white working class. So they bring in Trump. He says all the right things, lock her up, says all the things to embody their anger. But what did Trump do in those four years? And remember, I gave Trump money, put up a lot of signs, was out there in, in the rain and snow, is what Trump ultimately did was he kept the working class in abeyance. Oh, he's going to do something. The whole Q movement. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. What happened? Well, was I could no, I could tell you that there were things that were done. There was definitely executive orders and things that were done on the human trafficking issue. There were some things done in the intelligence world, getting out people internally, moving against some of the cartels. The uh, fact that we didn't start new wars that he pulled back, especially when it came to Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan, all this was done during his administration. We were not pushing. Like, remember, we were going to take out Assad. We were using ISIS to take out Assad right. until, until Trump came in. So. There, we there, did was arm a, there was a tonal shift in this country that America did feel optimistic economically. There was, it's like people were feeling good again about just about, about things, despite all the left race baiting and all this, this extreme anti, whatever their anti-Trump rhetoric was. It's like the mass shootings were down. It was like, it was just, it felt like a, a much more positive spirit, I would say in America. So it's to me, the president of a corporation, look, we all know that America is a corporation. The United States of America is incorporation. It's not the United States that was premised by our constitution of states having power that they then basically ceded certain things to the federal government. That's all been abandoned for over a hundred years, if not longer since the civil war, but especially since world war one, the federal government is massive. They are the major, they account for how, I don't even know exactly how much of our GDP, but huge amounts. They employ the military industrial complex. They employ right. big they, they basically are the generators of huge amounts of this economy and putting us all into debt, $30 trillion. So the president of the corporation only has so much. And I see all this differently from you because actually I see it as there are markers actually for the awakening of people and they're positive because people are realizing, man, Trump can't clean this out. He's, he's a president, of, he's a corporate, he's a CEO of a company. Wait a minute, maybe we want to go back to states' rights. And that's where the shift is coming. Decentralization, bring the power right. back to the individual, sovereignty, people saying, wait a minute, do I want to be a citizen of the government or do I want to be a national born here on the land who doesn't, who's, why am I being taxed, income tax, which is illegal, unconstitutional? You're giving money to this massive bloated machine that's the federal government, paying for things that I just, that have no relationship to me and don't know that I want. That The whole concept of Obamacare and everyone basically being part of the medical system. Well, you saw what the medical system did in 2020. It killed people. You go to the hospital, you're right. dead. Put on a ventilator. So I, I see it like a little bit differently because I have more optimism and seeing people waking up. And so there are markers for these things. And yes, you're right. There is an elite that's trying that maybe wanted to guide it, but I, I don't see them as all powerful as that. Because I, yes, I well, get it. This is the way I know what you're talking about as far yes. as the consensus. But people are at the they're at the breaking point, man. They're like Trump, Trump being shut down from Twitter and Instagram and social media. Wow, like we, we, if he can be shut down, and any one of us can be shut down. If Kanye West can be kicked out of Chase, we can all be kicked out. So it's like, it really is, these are wake up, these are moments of clarification for the people to say, take your power back, bring, create your own organizations like you're doing, create your own networks, your own companies, break from this totalitarian centralized system that obviously is personified by Klaus Schwab and WEF.
Yeah, so I, I think the difference, perhaps there's not a difference, Sean. What I'm saying is that when you look back at history, the moments when working people did organize in self-organizing systems independently, and in the most recent history that occurred in the late 1800s in the United States, the eight-hour workday came from, is, four American workers were hanged in the United States for fighting for the eight-hour workday. That was the beginning of May Day, which is not even celebrated in the, in the United States. And between 1886 to 1900, millions of working people organized bottoms up. And in response to that, the establishment in the 1950s, at least in the United States, they created the McCarthy era. So we need to go back and look at that history. So if you look at the history of slaves organizing, they would make some gains and then they would get settled back. They would make some gains. It's been this ongoing effort. But there is a physics to building these movements. And so people don't waste another 20 years of their life. So yes, you're right. There is an awakening. The movement that needs to be built, number one, needs to be founded on a political and a scientific historical understanding so people don't make those mistakes again. Because otherwise, people say, well, yeah, now I'm going to support this guy and that guy and this guy. There are some fundamental dynamics. No, they're Just like to build a bridge, there's some fundamental physics. To build an airplane, there's physics. To build a movement, there's some physics. And I think people need to do the educational work to understand that. And that's a curriculum we put together. But more importantly, it is these bottoms of movements that do it. And they've occurred throughout history. So yes, you're right. Trump, Kanye, all these guys doing that is important. But without an organized movement that understands these dynamics, they're going to fail again. And, I'm, and the point I'm bringing is... But I think it's happening organically, though. And that's it, 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 it's not so much that Trump is leading it. It's like Trump may have been a figurehead in spearheading and maybe in, in empowering people to say, wait a minute, we can actually, we don't need Bush, Clinton, the control for, of the political process or the head of the country. Wait a minute, wait, Trump is symbolically shifting things and it empower a lot of people. And I think that's why we're seeing these movements. It's January 6th. There wasn't, Trump wasn't leading that. There was the people that were outraged that were protesting. And obviously you have the infiltrators that are, that are, whatever they are, or whatever, that are infiltrating to create chaos. But for, most of those people there are peaceful. They're old, they're every age, they're every color. They're just protesting something. And that's what you're seeing, I think, is that you're seeing organically people are doing these things and creating networks. So it's both, right? It's Trump maybe doing his thing and, he, and Kanye is doing his thing, but it's like people are, I feel, naturally figuring this out and seeing each other and saying, hey, you, you see what I'm saying? We have certain, we have- the Yeah, same so, so here, here. here's yeah. a question, right? So if you go back to different points in history, 1920s, people were upset and they were upset at many things, right? In the 1960s, people were upset. And what I'm trying to say is, and now people are upset. These points where human people get upset and start doing these decentralized things have occurred before. This is not the first time. But at each one of those points in history, you'll find out that certain gains were made. And we need to reflect back on the dynamics of those movements to figure out what worked and what didn't. And if you look in the 1920s, it was when people organized independently. And when the unions were taken over top down and people outsourced their power to the political establishment, that's when things failed. In the 60s, if you look at the 1960s, the anti-war movement was growing, again, organically, bottoms up. Most of them were tied into saying Goldwater was the Republicans were warmongers and the Democrats were the lambs. And then in the 1968 Chicago convention, LBJ had machine guns pointed at on the stage. And when students were getting beat up outside, then people realized, wait a minute, the Democrats and Republicans are both warmongers. But it took about eight years for people to break with both wings of the establishment. And the instant they did that, within 
12 to 16 months the war ended. The point is that the obvious establishment always keeps a hand with the not so obvious establishment to give people incentives not to do this decentralized organization. That's what I'm saying. And this is something that without that consciousness, people will make that mistake again. So Tulsi Gabbard is out there. Yes, she's saying some good stuff. And so you have people saying the good stuff, but the issue is a goal to build this organic bottoms up movement, or is it to give people hope that the establishment structures are still the modes that are going to lead to change? And that's what I'm saying is it's a fine difference. It's not saying these people are individually bad people, but the point is Trump's trajectory is very different from the working people in the 1900s who organized bottoms up, sure. and who break from the wings of the establishment. And that's the subtlety here. There's an opportunity so we don't repeat the same mistakes again to truly go decentralized, to truly become self-organizing systems, bottoms up. But that needs to be actually spoken about right? Because we think it'll occur. You're right. It is becoming, but it, to think it's just going to occur, that revolution is just spontaneous. Revolution in some ways is organized. It needs some organ structure to, to understand that dynamic, not top-down structure, but to but understand. Evolution is, but evolution is not. Revolution might be organized and that's why it ends up coming back to the same old structures. And that's why right. you end up with the same bad actors, just new faces, basically the same old principles, but evolution is an experience. And so part of what I guess I'm arguing is that the point is that a Trump or Gabbard, anyone can't organize it if it is organic. And that's what I'm counting on is that essentially right. it's about technology. It's about technology. It's about consciousness, right? And so when technology and consciousness lick up and people link up, right? They create those new structure. They create those new movements. They, cre they create these new communities, these new economies, right? And that's what I'm basically counting on occurring now in this time period, because this is what we as humans are wanting. And so as we want, not all of us, obviously, I think there will be a split. There will be those that will be happy with their mRNA shots every month or every whatever, every year, and the gene editing and the merging with themselves and computers and 2030 agenda inside of a city, basically a smart city grid, and perhaps more influenced by the EMF frequencies that are that are merging that are mixing with whatever is in those shots whether graphene oxide or other th things right to essentially manipulate the human there'll be those that'll be happy living in those kind of completely ordered the way that Klaus Schwab talks about the fourth industrial revolution right like a mechanized roboticized right. society and then there are those that are like no we want freedom we want the organic human we we have a faith in a higher power and um, we're here to live based on those principles that you spoke of and merging them so that's I think what's taking place is this sort of the splitting of humanity across the planet. Yeah, it's interesting. In 1957, there was a guy who won the Nobel Prize called for self-organizing systems, this guy Pergroni, right? So there was this one theory of how there's this law in the second law of thermodynamics, which says everything goes to disorder, which means- so he did negentropy, exactly. Everything moving towards chaos. And he said, no, negentropy, because life is negentropic. It's actually self-organizing. So why is that? The principle came out under certain conditions things actually are in these self-organizing systems. So if you take a pot of oil and you start boiling it, at a certain temperature, it looks random, but at a certain temperature, it'll self-organize into these be beautiful tessellations. So if you look at human beings as everyone making their own individual decisions, right? It may look random, but at a certain point, when a certain state of consciousness, if you want to think about consciousness, you'll create patterns. And those patterns can be patterns of decay, dark ages, or patterns of enlightenment. But in those systems, there are catalysts, right? 
when you study chemistry a little, you'll understand that if you put certain thing into that oil, it'll cause these self-organizing systems to occur faster. So what we did after the campaign was we took this historical perspective, the, found, the science of systems, and the idea is to be a catalyst. Look, here are fundamental scientific nine principles that run your body, that goes back to the ancients, that run engineering systems. And the cool thing is we codified them so people can learn. And the reason is that if people understand those principles now, they can start saying, oh, I see this is. And so what we've done on Truth, Freedom and Health, Sean, is it took me 20 years to take the entire way that my grandmother looked at your body, the way the Ayurvedic physicians do it, and teach people to do it in about 30 minutes. So people can actually become their own healers now by understanding these principles. So it's not about this diet or that diet, but it's a set of principles that you apply. That's one. The other thing is people start recognizing these principles occur everywhere. So that's the first step. The other is, I think people, the current model is there's tons of information we have. Those in power essentially take a reductionist approach, right? Reductionism means you have the whole elephant, you just show one piece of it, right? And that leads people to ignorance and people get confused. And then in that confusion, people, I'm finding go into three modes. And you've probably seen this, they get either desperate like some kid taking a gun and shooting people, right? Becoming a domestic terrorist. Or they go into the left or right, or they say, I'm just going to become complacent. The alternative is, I think one recognizes that if you can start seeing the interconnection among things, it's a very spiritual concept, right? The interconnection among us within our body, all different things, that interconnection, there's some principles around that, that is real knowledge. So you start looking at information and you start seeing the interconnection, that leads to wisdom. And I think at that point, people get clear. They want to talk to their neighbors. They want to be self-organizing systems and they want to get activated. So that's really the fundamental shift. But they, but the opportunity, which didn't exist in 1960, didn't exist in the 20s, is that there was not an understanding of putting these frameworks together so people could actually understand those universal principles. So that's what we've done. So that's in many ways the latest innovation on truth, freedom, and health. We've taken that science and we've made it accessible to the masses. That sounds amazing. And so where can people find this? Yeah, I don't know if you can, if I can. So if you go to truthfreedomhealth.com, but if you go there, you'll see yeah. what we've done is it has, it took probably the last three years to message it so people can actually understand it in a simple, simplified way. So what's happened is organically about 360,000 people in 95 countries are going through this. And it's a very interesting process because you have to take the curricula sometimes, not just once, because... We're talking about integrating engineering system science with traditional systems of medicine with political theory, but it's the same stuff. But the idea is to enable people to be their own gurus. Mm -hmm. So they're looking within, but doing it in such a way, it's very tangible versus just using a lot of the frameworks that the gurus use with their vibhuti and their saffron robes, taking it out of that allure and making it much more tangible. That's what we've done. Amazing. I'm going to put the link obviously in our, uh, in yeah. our call refer people to it so that they obviously this looks incredible i have to check it out myself yeah you got um, you should come sean i'll give you yeah, a link by the way this saturday we're doing our second international conference on vaccine safety and immune health so we're going to go through what occurred over the last three years we're going to share the up-to-date science and just like we did three years ago we're going to update people on how do you really get to boosting the immune system exactly um, yeah, right. And that's the key, isn't it? It's the point, like what we're learning about that you mentioned earlier, the microbiome. And basically it's like how our immune systems work. It's right. Like, this is all evolution that hundred years ago when they were doing the basic vaccines to 
stimulate the antibodies. It's like they had no conception of a microbiome even. The microbiome, there's another system called the interferon system. When you actually get exposed to a virus, it upregulates about a thousand different genes. And it's the intermediary between your innate and your adaptive. So none of this is even considered. So the idea is I'm gonna short circuit all this. That's why the mRNA, it's a very reductionist model. If you get these antibodies, you're fine. It's a very dumb model, it's anti-science. So our goal is if we can educate everyday people, they should go educate their doctors. 99% of doctors maybe get a few hours of immunology. They go through four years of this very grueling medical industrial academic thing called health, a health process and they come out of it worn out, but they don't really understand the systems-based approach of the immune system. So I think our target should be to show, I think we as citizens gotta go grab a medical doctor and say, look, you need to go understand the immune system. Why don't you go come over here? Because you don't know anything about the immune system. You think this vaccine or this mRNA thing that the antibody gives you full protection is bullshit. So the goal is to strengthen people with confidence so they could also go be educators, a model of, going to these institutions of higher learning and getting educated. This is professor of organic chemistry. I don't know if you saw this, he got fired because he made his course too hard. Did you hear about this, Sean? I hear from my friend who was a professor. Yeah. Um, she basically is just, it's a joke they let they teach these guys now. She like pharmacology, just has a pharmacology or one of these things. Like she's there, we had a book that we took a whole year studying essentially on all basically just you name it just going through all the different uh, supplements, vitamins, herbs, and, and, and she's now we took a year and they took a month. So it's really, I'm not surprised that they've made this really My theory is they want computers to ultimately be the doctors. Right. Right? It's like big pharma basically is, oh, my, my, my neck hurts. Great, here, take this. And then right. the, the, the pharmaceuticals all have a thousand side effects. So now my mom, my kidney's hurting. I will go, now take this. I'm bleeding. Now I'm bleeding from <laughs> whenever right. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm bleeding. Yeah, now take this. And it's like everything is just mechanical and you could basically have a robot do it. It's very fascinating because I had an uncle who was a gastroenterologist in India, and he said, my parents were like, oh, you should come to the United States because I'm not gonna come there because all you guys do is cut, meaning do surgery. He says he would sit with a patient who came with a stomachache. He said, we just talk to them as a kind human being for about 90 minutes. And they would leave, everything was fine. And he was a borough trained surgeon. He goes, most of these issues are psychological because people haven't thought through what it means for them. So many of these, the stressors that people create, the number one reason that people live long is community. Out of all the research they did, the number one reason people live long is they have friendship and community. Number two was they all drank a local alcohol, a local fermented drink. Number three was exercise. Food wasn't even on there. It's fascinating. So we know when they did these lockdowns, the, the lack of community, it destroyed people's immune systems. Yes. So the foundations of bedside manners, being a loving, caring human being, has been completely taken out of the equation. The Reiki people, the massage people, the chiropractors who actually touch and feel their patients actually know what's going on more than a doctor who comes in, is looking at his thing and, and doing the billing charts. That's, to your point, that's what medicine has become. It's become a very perfunctory process and the humanity has been taken away. When, my, when you used to go see my, I've always felt when people used to go see my grandmother or these shamans, you notice how they have incense burning, they have some music, right? They have a certain ambiance, they're talking to the person. I think all of those little things are actually medicines. They're turning on genes and biological pathways. And I don't think people have looked at this enough. They call it the placebo effect. But these things are actually inputs from a system standpoint that turn on molecular pathways in the body. They calm people. 
So I think we need to go back. The cool thing is, Sean, with the work that we've done, we've actually been able to give the scientific base of Eastern medicine beyond sort of the woo-woo stuff it went through. When I used to teach this course at MIT, 200 people used to show up. 100 people were all the arrogant people, the MDs, PhDs on the left side. The other side of the people were the misunderstood people, the chiropractors, the naturopaths, the Reiki people. Within one hour, I was able to bring those people together because the people on the left, on one side realized, wow, there's a whole new way to looking at the body. And then people on the right on the right side of the room, they realized, wow, yeah, I know anecdotally this stuff works, but I was never able to explain it. And now I have the language. So we've literally created, found the Rosetta Stone of Eastern medicine with engineering system science. And uh, so that's been the latest stuff, Sean. And it's cool Amazing. because it integrates politics, integrates health, and it also integrates engineering, right? Because they're all following the same principles. Exactly. And that's very much how your mind works, which is why you're such a gem. You're such a unique individual. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me and uh, covered so much ground here. But again, I will direct people to your website. This is like an amazing, an amazing adventure. And yeah, love to be a part of it. So let's be in touch. And yeah, any final thoughts or we obviously- Yeah, I think, the most, I think the most important thing relative to the discourse we had earlier on the Trump stuff and all these emerging events that are taking place, Kanye, all these things, is that these emerging events, there's like sort of bubbles happening, big bubbles, are an opportunity for people to realize how we actually win that self-organizing model, the decentralization, because to me, that's the ultimate goal. And we have to be retrospective and look at history and look at some of the fundamental principles. It's an opportunity to really reflect. And that's because otherwise we will make the same mistakes. We'll get lost in, oh, wow, that person's saying something. I got to follow Kanye or DeSantis or the next Politico. And I think this is the opportunity where people need to get off that being a dog chasing its tail. And it, the opportunity that the events have taken place, opportunity for reflection and how we build a decentralized bottoms up movement in a way that actually succeeds. So that's the, the main point. Great. Thank you. And thank you again for your time. It's really wonderful to see you. It's been too long and yeah. let's be in touch. Yeah.